Today's scripture comes from chapter, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. Because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to NCF. Good to see all of you this morning. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is my joy and privilege to share with you God's word. And so without further ado, would you join me in bowing your heads as we pray for God's blessing. Father, we ask now that you would be with us as we sit at your feet, asking for you yet again to feed our hungry souls and teach our ignorant minds and quicken our deadened spirits so that once again we would be alive, alive to you and alive to the mission to which you have called us to live out. Lord, we have trekked these past six days in this world that is filled with such brokenness to where we have been confronted with our own. And we ask, Lord, that you would now heal us and enable us to be the men and women you've called us to be as you teach us yet again from your life-giving word. Oh God, would you empower and equip us in today's word today so that we may go back out into the world as your faithful representatives. And Lord, we ask now that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the things that you encounter in life is that sometimes you can't really understand something until you encounter that thing again or until you experience that thing again. 
again. Sometimes you don't really understand something until you encounter it again or experience it again. Case in point, let's say your wife or your husband has a new recipe that they want to experiment with you. You take that first bite and you're unsure whether you want to eat it or spit it out. And so you say, oh, let me get a second bite of that. Let me just see. Or you go on a setup date by your friends and at the end of the evening, you're not sure whether or not this person is going to be your future spouse or one of many in which you've never met again but so you're not sure so what do you do you go on that second date or if you're a college student your final grades for the semester clearly revealed that you did not understand organic chemistry in your first encounter of it and so because you still want to pursue that dream of being a heart surgeon you yet again sign up for organic chemistry the second time around yes indeed sometimes we don't understand something the first time around And that's why we sometimes need to experience it a second time around in the hopes that we grasp it then. And that principle also applies when it comes to certain teachings of the Bible. Case in point, in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, it says that when God created man, he created man in his own image. Now, what in the world does that even mean, to be made in the image of God? What does it even mean to be made in the image of anyone? That's such a vague way of describing and really explaining the nature of the relationship that we have with God and man. So we ask ourselves, what does that even mean? Well, you could do one of two things. You can go to your local Christian bookstore and pick up a massive 400-page book that is singularly devoted in explaining what it means to be made in the image of God. Or you could just keep reading the Bible And wait until you get the second encounter of what the Bible says of being made in the image of someone in the hopes that in that second encounter of it, you can understand it in the first encounter context. And sure enough, that is what happens if you keep reading through the book of Genesis. You once again, for the second time, encounter this notion of being made in the image of somebody in Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. Let's have it up there right there. It says this. When Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of a son who was just like him in his very image, and his name, his son's name, was Seth. Ah, there it is, the second encounter and clarification of what it means to be made in the image of somebody. When the Bible says that God created man, humankind, men and women, in his image, he is describing the nature of a relationship not between that of a master and a slave, not between that of an employer and employee, but that between a father and a child, which further means when God created mankind to bear his image, he created us so that he could create a family, or a more accurate way to put it, He created mankind so that he could expand his family because the Bible goes on to tell us that before God created anything or anyone, he already was a family. He was a family made up of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, what theologian Jonathan Edwards once referred to as the glorious family of the three, the glorious family of the three. And when you have that understanding in mind, when you understand that notion of God as Father, you can then understand what the main message of the Bible is. You know what the main message of the Bible is? The main message of the Bible is that God is on a mission in bringing his children back home. God is on a mission in bringing his children back home. Now, of course, when I put it that way, I'm implying something, am I not? What does it imply when God's main mission in this history is to bring his children back home. Doesn't it imply that his children aren't home? That his children aren't with him? Which means that God's family is a severed family. It's a broken family. The very first ever case of a broken family, according to the Bible, is God's family. 
God's family, God's children are no longer with him, and he is on a mission in bringing his children back home. But there we ask the point, ask the question, excuse me, why is God's family broken? Why are his children not with him? Well, Jesus, through a beautiful story, is going to tell us two reasons, two main reasons why God's family is broken and why it is apart. And he tells it through the parable, what is known as the parable of the prodigal son. And so, with that said, three things I'd like to share with you that explains why God's family is torn and what God is doing to fix it. Number one, the first reason God's family is torn apart. Number two, the second reason God's family is torn apart. And finally, the only reason God's family can have a happy ending. Okay? The first reason God's family is torn apart. The second reason. And finally, the only reason on how God's family can be restored. Let's jump right in. First, the first reason God's family is torn apart. Now, before we actually get into the story itself, it is important to know that whenever Jesus taught parables, he always taught it with the intent of teaching deeper truths, deeper principles. In other words, whenever God, excuse me, Jesus, he is God after all, whenever Jesus told stories, parables, they were very symbolic because they represented things beyond just what you read on the surface level. And this parable is no different. Take a listen to what New Testament scholar Craig Bloomberg says about this very parable. He says this, quote, Each character clearly stands for someone other than himself. Beyond doubt, in the mind of Jesus, the father stood for God, the elder brother for the scribes and Pharisees, and the prodigal for publicans and sinners. All of these details strongly suggest that Jesus wanted to present his audience with more than a simple, realistic picture of family life. So just to be aware, Jesus is telling this parable to us to teach us a deeper truth, which if you were paying attention to my introduction, I already told you what that deeper truth is. God is trying to teach us the two reasons why his family has been torn apart. And so let's look at the very first reason Jesus gives to us by reading our passage again, starting in verse 11 of our passage. Go all the way up. There we go. Where it reads this. And he, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took off to a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. Pause right there. Your attention, please. Jesus starts off the story by introducing to us a family, a father with two sons. And as we just read in that Bloomberg quotation, the father represents God. And who are the sons? Who do the two sons represent? They represent the two reasons why God's family is torn apart. And Jesus begins by first spotlighting in a profile of the younger son, who traditionally has been referred to as the prodigal son. And we ask ourselves, what kind of person was this prodigal? What kind of character did this younger son have? Well, it, just by a casual reading of verse 12, we can clearly see that he was an arrogant, pompous, selfish, entitled little boy, right? I mean, listen again to what he says to his father, his demand in verse 12. He says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, because we're not familiar with the cultural setting during this time, we can't really pick up on how offensive this young man's words are. And so let me help you shed light on that by reading to you what Pastor Tim Keller says in his commentary on this passage. Listen to what he says. Quote, here the younger son asks for his inheritance now, which was a sign of deep disrespect. To ask this while the father still lived was the same as to wish him dead. The younger son was saying essentially that he wants his father's things, but not his father. 
His relationship to the Father has been a means to the end of enjoying his wealth. And now he is weary of that relationship. He wants out now. He wants out now. This younger son was the epitome of what Proverbs calls the fool. Or as one pastor once said in a sermon I heard, this young boy had the three Ps. He was preposterous, he was pompous, and he was a punk. You like that? Preposterous, pompous, punk. That's who this young man was. I mean, to want to live your life as if your father is already dead when he is not, to want to live your life as if your father didn't even exist even though he does, is beyond messed up. But here's the thing. Jesus is not showing us this prodigal son as a way to condemn and to judge people who are like him or who are represented by him. No, no, no. Because, again, go back to that Bloomberg quote. Who does the prodigal son represent? He represents sinners, those who are far from God, those who don't believe in God. These are the unbelievers. And one of the things that you know about Jesus in terms of his attitude towards sinners, as you read about it in the gospel, is that he was always pursuing sinners. Sinners never pursued Jesus. Jesus pursued sinners. He invited himself to their homes. He ate with them. He dined with them. He ministered to them. He was always seeking them out. No, no, no. The reason why Jesus is telling us about the prodigal son is because he is trying to explain why those whom he represents, those who don't believe in him, those who are far from him, why they have severed their ties with God. And in fact, if you read verse 13 again, it tells us in clear detail what that reason is. Read it with me. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Interesting. As soon as the younger son is able to liquidate his portion of the father's property, he takes that money, and what does he do? He goes off to a far country, but in fact, he does all of that in just a matter of days. Not in a matter of weeks, but in a matter of days. What does that kind of behavior tell us about this young man? It tells us that this young man had his idea of going to the far-off country way before he even approached his dad about getting his portion of the wealth. He was fantasizing. He was already thinking. He was already planning to go off, which is why it only took him a matter of days to actually execute on that kind of a scale of a quest, right? And here's what's even more interesting. It says that he specifically wanted to go to a far-off country. That is, he wanted to go to a place that he's never been to, a place that he's never experienced, a place that he's never encountered, a place that was completely foreign to him, a place that in his mind he was missing out. See, in the ancient world, the only types of people who go off to far-off countries were people like this son's father, those who had the financial resources to go out there, but not people like the son, which is why he's demanding resources, money, to do what he couldn't do on his own. He wants the father's money so he can go off to the far-off country. What does it tell us about this young man? What is he struggling with? Doesn't it tell us that he's struggling with FOMO? There it is again. Remember FOMO, the fear of missing out, just in case you've forgotten what that is. Let me read to you the Wikipedia, a very authoritative standard, what, how it describes FOMO. It says this, FOMO is defined as a fear of regret, which may lead to a compulsive concern that one might miss an opportunity for social interaction, a novel experience, profitable investment, or other satisfying events. In other words, FOMO perpetuates the fear of having made the wrong decisions on how to spend time as, quote, you imagine how things could be different, i.e., better. Now, this Wikipedia article goes on to say that this term and hence this idea 
all originated in one man back in 1996, a social, excuse me, a strategic marketing strategist by the name of Dan Herman. That this idea, this notion of FOMO was created back in 96. But those of us who are familiar with the Bible, we know that FOMO has been with us since the beginning of the human race. Why do I say that? Because of what it says in Genesis 3. Let's have it up there. It reads this, starting in verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. This is the famous story that is known as the fall of mankind, where Satan, our great enemy, and the enemy of God disguised himself as a serpent, and he enticed our first parents, the original human beings, Adam and Eve, to sin against God by eating from the tree that he explicitly forbid them to eat from. Here's the question. When Adam and Eve were first created, they were sinless beings, right? They were not born with a sinful nature. How in the world did Satan pull off what seems to be the impossible? How did he get sinless beings who don't have any sinful inclination, desire in them whatsoever, how did he pull off getting them to actually sin? You know how he did it? used fear. He used fear. He made Eve afraid. Afraid of what? Afraid that if she didn't eat from this fruit that God forbid them to eat from, she would be missing out on something. What exactly was she afraid of missing out on? Wisdom, right? Because she looked at the fruit and she knew it offered wisdom and she couldn't resist. I don't want to miss out on wisdom. So she ate. She was afraid that if she obeyed God, if she committed to God, if she stayed faithful to God, she would miss out on wisdom. Now, What is wisdom? Think about it. What is wisdom? Well, some people say, oh, wisdom is knowledge, right? Wisdom is the ability to make good judgments, right? Yeah, of course, those are wisdom. Those are expressions of wisdom. But what is fundamentally wisdom? You know what wisdom fundamentally is? Wisdom is experience. It's experience. Think about it. How do you gain this knowledge of wisdom? How do you gain what is right and what is wrong. It comes from your encounter of certain experiences in life. So when Satan scared Eve by suggesting she would not have wisdom if she obeyed God, what he was really doing was scaring her into thinking that she would miss out on the experiences of life that made life wonderful, the experiences that only God was privy to, right? Then you will be like God. Then you will have the experiences that only God has for himself right now, right? For Eve to want wisdom, to crave it, is her to crave experience, to see what's out there, to see what is not in her current experiences of life now. She wants to go off to the far country and discover and go on the search and see what possibly she is missing out, things that God is not missing out on because he keeps it all to himself. The first sin that caused the fall of mankind was the sin of fear of missing out. It was FOMO, the same FOMO that drive this young boy to want to distance himself to his father as well. Which means he saw the father the way Eve saw God 
the moment when Satan was tempting her. How did Eve see God at that moment? She saw God as what? That person who keeps all the best things of life to himself, and he reduces me in a state of deprecation right, and denial to where I can't do. What is that describing? That's describing a slave to a master. It's the master who gets all the wonderful benefits. It's the master who gets to enjoy the best things of life. The slave is just deprived and has to settle for that deprivation. That's how this young boy saw himself towards his father, which explains, does it not, his anger that you can pick up in the tone when he demands what, is, what he thinks is his right. How dare you deny me? How dare you prevent me from going off to see what's out there? I'm going to go where you have prevented me from going. I'm going to experience what you can only experience, but I can't? No. Give me what's mine so I can finally experience what you have all kept to yourself. That is the first reason why God's family is broken, because a certain portion of mankind see God not as father. They see him as the selfish, tyrannical master who sees us nothing more as slaves, who keeps all the best to himself. Okay? That's the first reason why God's family is broken is because there's a misview of God that doesn't see him as father, but see him as master, a selfish master. But then we come to the second reason why God's family is broken, and this is embodied through the elder son. And to explain, let me go to my next point. The second reason God's family is torn apart. Let's skip down in our passage and read verse 25. If we have verse 25, all the way down to verse 28, where it says this. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drawn near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Here now we come to the portion of Jesus' story where he now introduces us to the older brother. But because we skipped a lot of the story in order to get here, let me give a quick recap of quick synopsis of what happened prior to these verses that we just read. So the prodigal son goes off and he lives a levacious and licentious lifestyle, indulging in every possible thing, try to satisfying his FOMO, but before he can actually do so, the money runs out. The country that he's in goes through a severe famine. He has no friends, he has no family, and he's reduced to working for a pig farmer, right? And it's clear that in verse 16 that this pig farmer is not paying him enough because he actually yearns to eat what the pigs are eating, okay? So in that moment, all of a sudden, this fear of missing out, this FOMO is eclipsed by another fear, a greater fear, which is what? The fear of death. Isn't that interesting? FOMO is usually a very hard fear to overcome. It's hard to alleviate. It's hard to get rid of, right? And yet, Bible says, the fear of death is actually a greater fear. That, death is, that fear of death is actually so greater that it actually can extinguish the fear that is almost impossible to extinguish, FOMO. And so, with this fear of death, he goes back home, and he begs his father to be what? Make me a what? A slave. <laughs> Isn't that ironic? He goes back to the father wanting to be the very thing that he resented his father for, Look, you see me as a I'm out of here. I'm going to go off the bar. But then he comes home, right? Because the fear of death has just taken out of his FOMO and he says, make me a slave. Please make me a slave. How ironic is that? But of course, the father will have none of it 
And instead, he restores this young boy, this prodigal, back to the status of a son, evidenced by giving him a new robe, new sandals, new ring, and he throws a massive party for the whole city because he kills the fattened calf. Now, it's at this point of the story that we come to the verses that we've just read, where the older brother hears the commotion, right? And he hears what's going on. He finds out what the issue is, and he's angry. He's furious. Why? Read again verse 29 to verse 30. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours come, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Turns out the older brother is angry because in his mind, his father unfairly honored his younger brother at his expense. And when I say at his expense, I mean that literally because think about it. This younger son, he squandered his portion of his father's wealth, right? All the stuff that belonged to the younger son, it's gone. He spent it all on prostitutes, which means what? Whose money is paying for this young punk's party? Whose money is paying for this young punk's sandals, his robe, his ring? Whose money is it? It's the money that would have gone to the older brother, right? Right? Because that's the only money that's left. And so this older brother is reacting the way a person will react when something of his was stolen from him, right? That's why he's angry. But consider that reaction for just a moment. What does that reaction assume? What does that reaction assume? Doesn't it assume that according to this older brother's mind, that this father has taken what belongs to him because this older brother earned everything that was freely given, graciously given to the younger brother, right? He's angry because what he earned, what he merited, is just being freely given away, radically given away to someone who does not deserve it. Listen again to his response. Look, these many years I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. What's he saying? He's saying, all these years, I've worked for you. I merited all those things that I've acquired, my portion of your wealth. That's not really yours. That's my wealth. How dare you take what is rightfully mine based on what I did, what I earned, what I worked for, and you just freely give it to a person who hasn't worked for it, who hasn't... His mindset is what? This is the second reason why God's family is broken why God's family has been torn apart. And that reason is God's family is broken up because another portion of mankind see God as a business employer rather than seeing him as father. Let me say that again. The second reason why God's family is broken up is because a certain portion of mankind see God as a business employer rather than seeing him as father. And according to Jesus, there's specific types of people who see God this way. You know who they are? Religious people, right? Have the Bloomberg quote out for just a moment. Remember Bloomberg says that the older brother represents who? He represents the scribes, the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of the day, right? And if you read through the Gospels, one of the things that you know real quickly that Jesus can't stand religious leaders. Why? Why can't he stand them? Because these people treat their relationship to God as a business relationship rather than as a family relationship. Now, you're thinking, well, what's the big deal about that? Why is that bad? Haven't you heard that phrase, never go into business with family? You heard that before? 
don't ever go into business with family. That's a bad idea. You read about that all the time, every other month in Fortune magazine. Don't ever go into business with family. Why do people say that? Because the relational dynamics of operating a business is the polar opposite of living together as a family. What is the underlying message within a business? Isn't it, look, if you want to have approval, if you want to be blessed, if you want to be benefited, if you want to be loved, you better perform. You better get things done. You better meet the bottom line and then some. Then and only then will you be rewarded. Then and only then will you be accepted. Then and only then will you be loved. What is that? That's conditional love, right? What's the underlying message of a family or what should be the underlying message of family? The underlying message of family is, look, no matter how much you mess up, no matter how much you screw up, no matter how much you hurt yourself or hurt me, if you want to come back, if you want to be a part of this family, you're in. What is, that's unconditional love, right? These are the two underlying messages between a business and a family. And if you think about it, these two messages create different attitudes towards those different settings. What do I mean? Well, think about it for just a moment. If the underlying message of a family is, I love you no matter what, to where our relationship will always be intact, always be in existence as long as you want it, how are you going to relate to family members who are struggling? How are you going to react? You're going to show compassion, right? Because the way family dynamics work is you see your family member's success as your success to where you see their happiness as your happiness, but you also see their failure as your failure, right? Their suffering as your suffering right? There is a spirit of compassion that should be there when it comes to family, right? Your loss is my loss. Your pain is my pain. Your suffering is my suffering. Your disadvantage is my disadvantage. But think about a business setting, right? Where it's all conditional love, where you're only able to get the blessings, all the benefits, all the rewards if you perform. What kind of attitude gets breeded in that context with fellow people that you work with? Does it create a sense of kumbaya and camaraderie? No. What does it create? It creates competition, right? You see competition as the driving force because not everyone can be CEO. There's only one CEO in a corporation of 400. They don't have 400 CEOs. There's only one spot. So what do you do if you want that coveted spot? You have to compete against Jack, against Mary, against Rob, against Cindy, against Howard, against Rebecca. I'm making up names. Pretty impressive that I can come up with names. It's all about competition to where if your coworker is failing, do you see that as your failure? No. You see it as your advantage. You see your employer's disadvantage, your fellow uh, employee's disadvantage as your advantage, right? But conversely, you see their success, their thriving as a threat to you. Hey, who is that? That's the older brother, right? He sees his younger brother thriving, growing, and how does he perceive it? With joy? With excitement? No, he sees it as a threat. Instead of loving his younger brother unconditionally to where he's willing to do whatever he could to help his brother prosper and flourish again, he has no compassion, evidenced by the fact that he is furiously angry at the father for showing such compassion. Now, you know what's so sad about this, if I can go on a little tangent? Not much has changed amongst religious people today, especially religious Christians. Some of these religious people, unfortunately, become pastors. They start churches where they breed the spirit of competition amongst their members to where the members feel like if only I could get God's approval represented through the approval of my pastor, 
then I'll be somebody. And so instead of creating a spirit of compassion amongst the members, it creates a bitter rivalry amongst members, right? To where it's all about what can I do to set myself apart so that I can be a spiritual leader. And what happens is that once you do attain that spiritual leadership, you look down on those who aren't in spiritual leadership. And those who are not in spiritual leadership resent those in spiritual leadership because you just feel that sense of superiority over them, right? And these kinds of pastors will say things like, oh, if you're struggling, you just need to pray more, right? You need to come out to all the programs that I put together. You need to support me. Oh, I heard some ridiculous thing recently of how certain pastors expect their members to clap loud as they make their way up to the pulpit. The person who claps the loudest gets the pastor's approval. How evil that is. So you have churches that are so toxic, constantly splitting, and people are wondering, why is it like this? I'll tell you why. Because churches like that breed the second reason why God's family is torn apart. Instead of breeding a spirit of compassion, it's breeding a spirit of competition. All because instead of seeing God as father, you see God as a boss to whom you have to earn respect, earn love, earn merit, earn rewards. It's all about earning. So there you have it. Two sons that represents the two reasons, the two mindsets why God's family is broken. One portion of humanity sees God as a selfish tyrant master. The other portion of mankind see God as the ruthless boss who only cares about the bottom line. What in the world is God going to do? Because God is represented by the Father, right? What is God going to do? The answer leads me to my final point. The only reason God's family can have a happy ending. Read again with me the Father's response to the elder son anger in verse 31. He says this, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. What is the father saying to the older boy? Well, first of all, he's calling him son, right? He's kind of reminding him of something that the boy should not have forgotten. He addresses him as son. In a sense, he's saying to the boy, look, you are my son. You are not my employee. You don't have to earn or merit what I have. What I have is already yours, If you want to party, go to it. You don't have to earn. I'm not withholding anything back until you earn these things. Just take it. It's already yours. In a sense, he's trying to remind his son of his identity as a son. But conversely, by doing that, he's trying to remind the son of who he is to the son. I am your father. I am not your boss. I am fundamentally your father. And then he goes on to say in verse 32... It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead, and now he's alive, he was lost, and is found. What is the father basically saying through that statement? He's asking the son, where is your compassion? Where is your compassion? This brother of yours was dead, he's now alive. He was living in sin, and now he repented. Where is your compassion? How can you be this way? This poor father had two sons that both saw him the wrong way. First sees him as a selfish, tyrannical master. The other sees him as a boss who doesn't care about anything but the bottom line. And they both did not see him for who he was as the father. And as a result, his family was broken. And so we come back to the question, what is God going to do about this? What is God going to do to restore the proper mindset humanity must have 
in order for the family that they belong to can be restored and intact. Well, Jesus doesn't tell us in this story, but he tells us in another teaching of his in John 14. This is as he's talking to his disciple, Philip. He says this, Jesus told him, Philip, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is telling us the main reason why he came. You know why he came? He came to show us who our God is. Who is our God? He is not the tyrannical slave master, a la prodigal son. He is not the boss who we work for, a la older brother. He is father. He is father. See, these two boys in the story of Jesus represents the two mindset that all of humanity embodies. It's either some people think God is a selfish, tyrannical master. Some people see God as someone who you can earn approval through your works and through your righteousness. Right? And so what is God going to do? He's going to have to send another one of his children. He's going to have to send the ultimate child of his. He's going to have to send the only begotten son, the one who really sees the father the way he should be seen. Right? And he shows us who he is through him. And what kind of father does Jesus show us? He shows us that he is a father who shows compassion to his children. Jesus came to show us the father, that he is a compassionate God expressed in two ways that correspond to the two misguided mindset in our world. First, Jesus came to show that the father is not withholding anything from us. God, our Father, does not hold back the best life that we could possibly have. He does not withhold the best things all to himself. In fact, Scripture goes on to say that God gave us the very best thing that he possessed. What was the best thing that God the Father possessed? You know who it was? It's Jesus. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31, we read, If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, if you ever dare to think that following Christ means that you're going to miss out on something remarkable and amazing, look to Jesus. Because Jesus is the greatest evidence that he gave the very best for you. He gave you his son so that you could have the best possible of all lives, which is eternal life, if you have faith in him. That's what he's saying. But second of all, he's saying something else. Jesus came to show the father that he is a father of compassion, evidenced by the fact that he doesn't receive you based on your works, your righteousness. In fact, your works and righteousness aren't even good enough to earn. That's why he sent Jesus in the first place, so he could work for you. He could merit for you the blessed life, the blessed rewards that you want to have. Listen again, Paul in Romans 8, this time in verses 38, he says, And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. God is not our boss. He is our Lord but he's our father, Lord. He is our father. Where it's not about earning this love that could be taken away, Paul says right here, nothing can take away 
his love for you once you receive it through Christ. All you need to do to have the Father's love is believe who Jesus says God is. He is your Father. That's what you do when you accept Christ as Lord and Savior. When you accept Christ as Lord and Savior, you're not just saying, oh, I accept that through your death I have propitiation and atonement and, 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 and freedom from my sin. He's also saying, I agree who you say God is, Jesus. He is your Father and he is my Father. That is what believing the gospel entails. Sorry, my mic keeps falling off. God is Father. That's the main idea. Now, the question that we're trying to answer in this sermon series is simply this. Now what, NCF? Now what? In light of the clear call and the clear command that God is calling us to become our own independent, separate church from KCQ, what are we now to focus on? What are we now to be about? What are we to tell others? You know what we're to be about? You know what we're to focus on? You know what we're all to be about? We're all about, we're all about focusing that God is Father. That's what we're to focus on. So that when we're together as a church family, we don't see each other as fellow competitors who have to compete against each other for favor from God. We see each other as brothers and sisters who have one father where we don't have to compete against each other and therefore we can show compassion to one another when one of us is struggling, when one of us is failing, when one of us is doubtful. We don't shout words of judgment. You just need to pray more. You need to just come out to prayer meeting more. You need to just do all this. You need to read your Bible. Yeah, you should do those things, but you don't do that to earn God's favor. You do this because you've already been favored by God, right? That's what we're about. We're all about showing each other through our words and action that God is our Father. He's not boss. But you know what that also means? We go out into the world and we tell everyone else who don't know Jesus, the unbelievers, the prodigals, That God is not a slavish taskmaster, as Christopher Hitchens once said in his book, God is not great. We tell God is Father. And he can be your Father if you would just accept the testimony of his Son, our Savior, our Lord, Jesus. What are we about, NCF? We are about God being our Father. Here's my question. Do you see God as Father? Do you see God as Father? I want to invite you now just to close your eyes for just a moment and to elicit some reflection in light of today's message. And it really comes back to that question that I just asked a moment ago. Who is God in your life? Is God the master? Is God the boss? Is he just the king? Or... Is he first and foremost Father? One of the things that I know many of us struggle with, whether we want to admit it or not, is we believe God loves us, but does he really love you? It's so easy for us to say, yeah, I know God loves me as part of a generic collective known as the church, but no, I'm asking you, Do you believe the Father's love is for you? Do you believe God truly loves you as Father? Do you believe that having him as Father, you're not missing out on anything, but you are an inheritor of all things? Do 
where everything that is his is now yours. Think about your relationships with each other in CF and ask honestly, have you been envious? Have you been bitter? When you see other people in this community who have quote unquote more than you, whether it's marriage, whether it's children, whether it's a job, whether it's money, see their success as an indictment against you or do you give thanks to God do you have compassion towards each other let's go to him now and ask for the spirit to make this message true in our hearts Father, we ask now that as we have heard your word, that it would penetrate deep into our hearts and that it would bring such transformation to where it changes how we look, not only at ourselves, not only at the world, but the people around us, but fundamentally it will change the way we see you. Father, for far too long we have not seen you the way who you are, whether it's seeing you as the prodigal son saw the father or the elder brother who saw the father both wrong, both misguided, both sinful and a betrayal to you. God, help us to see who you are as revealed through your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you've come to this earth, that you pursued us. Unlike the elder brother in the story that you've told, you didn't stay in the Father's house. You came and you pursued us and you went to that far country rescued us from ourselves and you spared us from the greatest fear of all the fear of death to where now we have hope oh Jesus thank you for being our great older brother and thank you for showing us the father for who he is and thank you that your spirit lives within us as a constant source of encouragement and reminder and conviction of you being the son of the father God, help us to never forget this. So as we move forward, we would be a community that recognizes that you are our Father by the way that we treat each other with compassion and by the way that we live in this world and as we tell those around us that you are Father. Would you help us to do that? For we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people together said.